Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. When's the last time you were able to find a really nice 100% wool sweater at the store? I'm drawing a blank, which is part of the reason why I started knitting my own sweaters a few years ago. And one of the people I encountered as I sank deeper and deeper into the woolly world of yarn was Clara Parks who started out in 2000 with a newsletter reviewing yarn and now has six books under her belt, including the New York Times best-selling book, Knitlandia. Her seventh book, Vanishing Fleece, is a yarn of a different kind. The unlikely story of how she adopted a 676-pound bale of wool and in the process of transforming it into commercial yarn, got an inside look at a disappearing American industry. Parks' journey takes her across the country, from New York to Wisconsin and Maine to Texas. Along the way, she meets shepherds, shearers, dyers, and the countless mill workers who tend the machinery that's kept us in woolens for more than a century, but which, for the past 50 years, has been on the verge of utter collapse, thanks to the ravages of offshoring, union busting, and the corporate quest for profit. Clara Parks joins us in the studio this rather cold November to relate her adventures in American wool. Thanks so much for talking to me, Clara. Thank you for having me. So you'd started out writing for Knitters in 2000. Now it's 19 years later and Vanishing Fleece is a much bigger story than the story of only yarn, even though saying only yarn is sort of disingenuous. So who do you see as the target audience for this book, Vanishing Fleece? For this book, I see it as anybody who is curious about the world around us, right? They're curious about the fabric that is on our bodies. And wool in particular, it's almost like salt or cod, right? It's been with us for 10,000 years. I mean, we, we started breeding sheep for their wool about 3000 BCE, like when we started, when we figured out writing. <laughs> we started wearing wool. Wow. So it's it's anybody who's interested about fabric or just like the world around us, there's a huge story in wool. Right. And it seems true to me that the further away we get from making our own things, whether it's a wool sweater or, you know, fishing for our own cod or collecting our own salt, any of these things that you mentioned, the less appreciation I think we have for the work that goes into it. So can you outline, generally speaking, the path that like the pound of wool for a sweater takes to get from the back of a sheep 
to the back of a human. Okay, yeah. You would have your sheep. They're usually bred in the fall. And then in the spring, about three weeks before lambing, a shearing crew comes in and they will shear the current, their winter coat off of the sheep so that they will be more comfortable for summer, so that birthing will be easier, so that the lambs can find their food source without any problems, just keeps them clean and comfortable. So at that point, the wool is baled up and it needs to be sent to a scouring plant. And depending on the kind of wool, the softer wools tend to have more grease on them. So you could end up losing like 50% of the weight that came off of the sheep once it's been scoured. So then from scouring, it would go to the mill. And that's where you have to decide, what do I plan on doing with this? How do I plan on having it spun? Do I want to have color before it's spun or after it's spun? But assuming we're talking about just like a very standard something, you would then send it to the mill where they would open up that bale and they would run it through um, an initial thing called like a a picker. It it basically really opens those fibers up because they've been really compressed this whole time. And then they run it through machine after machine after machine that is, it's sort of like sifting flour Mm -hmm. so to get each fiber separate from each other fiber so that they can move freely as they're being spun because we're not spinning it anymore by hand when we were spinning it by hand we could just slow down speed up move kind of fuss with things so it goes through multiple stages of carding and pin drafting and that kind of thing until it is spun and then you have to decide how many of those strands do i want for what i'm making Do I want just one strand alone, which isn't going to be as strong, but it's going to be softer? Do I want multiple strands twisted together into applied yarn? So then you'll have to take multiple bobbins and twist them together. And then once you have the yarn in the construction that you want, it's still really... um, kind of dense, I don't want to say sad, but it's it's not its best at that point. So it's on a, a bobbin and it needs to be put onto a cone What's fun is in the in the mill world, like every piece of equipment relies on a different type of cone or spool or bobbin. So at every stage, it comes off of one machine and it has to be rewound onto the next spool where it goes through that stage. And then it has to be rewound onto a bobbin. And then at that stage, it has to be rewound onto a cone. And every single time you do that, there's loss as well. So finally, you have the yarn that you want, and then it has to go to a dye house. And dye houses, we don't really, that I know of, have any dye houses connected to mills anymore. There are very few dye houses left in the United States, commercial scale. Um, Most of them are in the Philadelphia area. That's just historically where it's been, because that was the carpet industry. So you'd send it there, and they would dye it into whatever color you wanted. There's a whole protocol for sending them the color that you want and they work through to match it they would dye it and then it finally goes to whoever is going to make your garment and then it has to find its people so at that point it could be maybe one quarter of what it was when it came off of the sheep so it it takes a long journey and historically it used to be a very short trip We had mills in every town, in every county. You would have all of this set up. But now there's a bigger carbon footprint because there's just less in the world now. Right. Yeah, I mean, your great white bale of yarn, all 676 pounds of it, takes quite the journey across the country. How many different places did you send this this bale of yarn? 
I, I chose four mills. Originally, I thought I would do six, but that was a ridiculous <laughs> because <laughs> mills work on their own time frame. And this was supposed to be a year and that just wouldn't have worked. But also, uh, I wanted each mill to represent something very specific. So they weren't just gratuitous choices. So the first mill was Bartlett Yarns in Maine. And it's the earliest kind of example of mechanized spinning that's still in use in the United States. It's called a spinning mule. And it's a really, really cool piece of machinery that, that it moves to mimic the movements of the early hand spinners. And then that was later replaced with a frame where everything sits still so that you can spin yarn twice as fast because it's not moving half the time. So for that one, I sent it to um, Blackberry Ridge Woolen Mill in Wisconsin. And um, partly because I knew she was she's a smaller mill and I needed someone who'd be willing to slow things down and explain them to me. And the bigger mills, like, they are trying to go through, like, 10,000 pounds a day. Wow. And now he's sending them, <laughs> hey, I have 223 pounds. Will you do something with it? So it was, um, and so she explained this next piece of equipment called a spinning frame. And then from there, I wanted to go to uh, both of those types of spinning. It's part of the woolen system. And it's all just how the fibers are prepared before twist is applied. So in the woolen system, there's the least amount of preparation. So it's this wonderful, fluffy, jumbled, like, you know, grandma kind of sweaters in the in the best possible way, or like a bowl of oatmeal. But then for things like socks or kind of the newer sort of slinky merino stuff that we have, it goes through another step called combing, where all the fibers are aligned in a more uniform way and all the short, irregular fibers are removed. And there's a ton of loss in that. I can't remember now, but it was like 50% of the fiber I sent in was lost. Um, So for that, I needed, we only had one mill that I know of in the U.S. that has their own combs on site. So that was at Kramer Yarns in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. And then the last mill, I went back to the woolen spinning system, but it was the biggest mill that I could find to work with that didn't require a thousand pounds right up front. And that was S&D spinning in Millbury, Massachusetts, and they spin the yarn that goes inside every Major League Baseball. And at the time, they were spinning yarn for the uh, Navy Peacoats, which have now been removed from the, whatever you say, the mandatory sea kit bag. So it's now optional in favor of a nylon parka. I'm just going to let that sit there. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so it was, uh, so I went from small to big and old to the newest stuff that we have just to show kind of the scope of what's out there it started as how it's made but it really became who is here what is their story how are they still here uh how can we help them right well to turn that question back around on you how are they still here because a lot of them have been around for decades if not centuries Mm -hmm. a couple of these mills are quite quite Mm -hmm. old how did they manage to survive the, like, the tumultuous globalization and labor unrest from the past hundred years? Barely. Barely. Um, the the mill in Pennsylvania, uh, Kramer, he kept saying, we did what we had to do to survive. So originally they owned this huge uh, facility and they had to sell the building. 
And like one by one, all the buildings went elsewhere and they now rent a part of the building where they used to be. And they sold off a lot of their equipment. I mean, it's all, it's really easy to frame as tragic and it is extremely difficult, but it's also becoming more efficient. So they're able to do now with fewer people and smaller space, an equivalent of what they were doing. So that's good, but a lot of it, it's just been holding on. The S&D people, they were ready to close. They had tagged the equipment. And there's another irony. It was the, um, I've already forgot, a museum in Lowell, the American Textile Museum, that was going to take this equipment. And that museum has closed. Mm. (laughs) So people are holding on. A lot of people are gone. But at this point, there's hope as there's a beginning of an onshoring wave they're getting busier and busier and we're almost at the place where there's room for somebody new to come in as well. You talked about onshoring and how a lot of companies, or not a lot, but a number of companies have either sprung up or returned even to the United States in making their garments, their textiles, their wools here. And there's also, I think, a resurgence in going back to craft and artisanal things, whether it's making those things yourself or buying from a local maker. How do you think that plays into the resurgence of wool? Can we say there's a resurgence in wool? Like, is this the only growth spot for the industry? I think there definitely is a resurgence in wool. And I feel like the 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 way in which Albert's shoes were embraced is a perfect oh, yeah. example. It's now valued at what, over $1 billion, or is it even $2 billion as a company? Mm-hmm. And it started with wool shoes. We have Farm to Feet, which is doing wonderful stuff in the sock sector, completely traceable socks. Everything is made in the U.S., even the the labels and the display cases. And also now that we're understanding about microfiber pollution, there's just more reason to start looking at different fibers and why not go with the fiber that's been with us for thousands and thousands of years and it's every year they offer it up to us it's annually just there and they need us to take it from them or else they won't be comfortable so it's I I feel like I'm doing my stump speech but it's like (laughs) how can you not it's it's like biodegradable and it puts nitrogen back in the soil and it's it has the highest combustion temperature of any natural fiber. So it's really hard to burn wool. Whereas a polyester sweater, and I know we all have them, I'm not trying to shame people, but it it will burn, it will ignite and burn really quickly. And even the US military, the Department of Defense, they've come around. They're now the biggest single purchaser of wool in the United States. Wow. And they have a no melt, no drip policy. So anything that comes in direct contact with your skin cannot be 100% polyester anymore because it's just too dangerous. So they're using wool and they're using cotton. They're using natural fibers. Yeah. So I do think there's a, a reawakening right now. It's a good time for wool. Can you talk more about um, how wool is good for the environment beyond just what we wear in our bodies? Because you've talked a lot about its like breathability and how good and comforting it is for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but this touches a little bit on what you were saying with um, the microplastics and returning nitrogen into the soil. Mm-hmm. How is wool good for the environment in that way? It's, it's very interesting. Like right now, um, there are more studies being done on quote unquote carbon farming. And the key here is that um, it all relies on responsible land management, right? So anywhere that you put like 
a hundred thousand of anything and they graze everything down to nubbins, it's not good. But combining sheep with regenerative agriculture practices where you're moving them, rotating them from area to area, people are able to quantify how much carbon those sheep are helping sequester. And even in their wool, they sequester more more carbon than cotton can sequester as a fiber and um, cellulose, cellulosic. So like um, bamboo or rayon or any of those. So it's, they can play a very vital part in regenerating our soil just by virtue of all they need is sunshine and water. Those are the only inputs. So sunshine and water makes plants grow. Plants pull the excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they sequester it into their roots and then the sheep eat the plants and it causes the plants to, whoa, shoot more carbon down into their roots for safekeeping and then you move the sheep along. There's at least one farm out west, uh, Lanny Estill, she did something for North Face. It's carbon neutral, what she's doing. She's been able to determine, like, she's sequestering more than she's taking. I know animal-based agriculture is in a challenging spot right now, but the less we stand in our corners and say, no, it's bad, or yes, it's absolutely good, you're terrible if you don't believe in me, and, and kind of start to go into the gray area. And also because I feel like humans have, we made a pact with sheep 10,000 years ago, and that if we hadn't made that pact, they would be extinct now. They're prey animals. They wouldn't be here. So it would be kind of an abdication of our moral responsibilities if we just said, well, that's it. We're not going to do well anymore. They would be gone. And so why not try to to do the best that we can with them here now, see what we can accomplish? Right, because we've bred them to require shearing and to require basically that we make wool sweaters from them. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, we have to make sweaters. <laughs> so the the thing with shearing a sheep, it is a necessary act. It it's like clipping your cat's nails. It's different, but it's a similar if you didn't do it, the animal will quickly suffer. The the Shrek, the sheep in New Zealand who evaded shearers for several years, uh, he was deeply suffering by the time they found him. And it was kind of a miracle that he managed to live. You can get wool blindness. They can get fly strike where flies lay eggs in the fibers. And they, when the larvae hatch, they bury themselves deep into the folds of skin of the sheep and eat the sheep alive from the inside out. It's an awful thing. Um, and so you shear to prevent that. In a lot of places, it's actually legally animal cruelty to not shear a sheep. You can get in trouble for it. But last year, there was a whole spate of ads for polyester garments where they used, it was uh, one company used a picture of Shrek, the sheep that was suffering, to say, this is great because this is guaranteed no sheep were harmed to suggest that this was a happy sheep and we didn't hurt it by taking away its coat. But it's sort of like saying, don't worry, we didn't milk that cow. We we let it stand in the field and be really uncomfortable and get mastitis because touching or interacting with an animal is a cruel thing. And I don't want to suggest that shearing doesn't have its challenges anytime you have a human being negotiating with an animal, especially when you're working with rams 
there's there's a tussle. I mean, there are animals. And yet it represents three and a half to four minutes of that sheep's year. Especially when the recommendation is instead of wearing this fiber, that's a natural annual byproduct of this animal, it's removed for their comfort. Why don't you wear this sweater that's made of recycled soda bottles? And I'm all for recycling soda bottles, but it's just contributing to more and more plastic. That's a different kind of cruel. If you think about how it's hurting the earth, how it's hurting marine wildlife, how those microfibers are getting into our bodies. They found them in bees and in honey and mosquitoes and frogs and leaching chemicals in our organs and messing with our endocrine systems. That's not kind either. And that really is a global problem, which brings me to my last question for you. Yours is a book that takes place solely on this country, on the continental U.S., just because that's where you happen to live. Mm -hmm. And that's where your bale of yarn happened to come from. But I wonder, you know, the U.S. is not even the main supplier of wool in the world. It's like 1%, Mm -hmm. something. Yeah, it's very small. Mm -hmm. Um, And sheep aren't even native to North America. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, would your masters of yarn making have looked the same in like a Peru or an Australia or someplace else where sheep live? Oh, it would have been very different, I think. Um, I mean, it would have looked different because the breeds are different and the culture around the animals are different. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mechanics of it would have been the same, but the culture around wool is different. And I, I mean, I would have, I would have loved to do this in other countries, but it seemed very preposterous to, you know, oh, I'm going to England and let me tell you how to do wool, okay? <laughs> I don't care that your empire was built on, on wool. Listen to me. I'm an American. No, and, and I really, I didn't mean for this book to be a nativist manifesto about American wool. It is just that this is where I was. And what I describe in the book is something that is happening around the world, everywhere. The people who rely on sheep for their livelihood or who've connected their well-being to the well-being of sheep, they've all faced a similar kind of decline. And interestingly enough, the last time Washington went to the World Series, uh, the United States was the fifth largest wool producer in the world. And it's gone down to the point where wool represents 1.2% of all global textile fibers today. And yet today we buy three times as much clothing per year than we did in 1960. But yet we spend one-third as much for it. And the majority of it is non-renewable, non-biodegradable, highly flammable fibers. It's just you look at it that way, and it's almost like a a horror story (laughs) unfolding. You want to yell, like, don't do it. It's not going to end well. (laughs) And wool is just so interesting. I mean, they're they're doing so many things with it. They're using it for air masks in, um, in Asia. And also, I believe in Australia, just like in California, when there were the forest fires, they were sending them there so that people could breathe. There are wool pellets that you can put in your garden, in the soil, and it's just waste from shearing. So it's not even, it's like ways to use the byproducts. They're using wool to insulate packaging. So if you have like a food delivery thing, that it can now have wool waste inside and you can throw that wool away and it'll biodegrade. Um, there are wool bandages. There's a guy in New Zealand who's doing that. Somebody else is doing wool in composite materials for surfboards. And he's finding that it's a very efficient, like it's as good or better than the current fiberglass model that they have. 
And there are even wool coffins. <laughs> the ultimate. You can be born in wool and then die in it. Yes. <laughs> end to end, cradle to grave. Totally biodegradable. <laughs> so it's just, it's such a cool thing. And sheep are so great. They're such good company. There are so many layers to the clothes we make. And I love that Clara Parks's book takes you all the way from sheep to sweater or sock or hat or whatever that wool becomes. We're so disconnected from the processes behind the things that we wear and use today. And Claire Parks's book, Vanishing Fleece, is definitely a crash course in understanding at least one of those processes. We've got links to the book and some really awesome videos from various mills in the show notes, as well as some of the companies and farms that Clara mentioned. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay warm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.